This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the MDT Podcast. This week, we're going to be covering communicating with people with cognitive impairment. And I am Ian Wilkinson. And I'm Joe Preston. And welcome. And Joe today is barefoot. You should know she's barefoot in the studio, <laughs> a barefoot broadcaster. Unnecessary information. <laughs> so we're going to talk through a few things. One of the things we're going to do is to look at how cognitive impairment might impact a person's ability to communicate with you. We are going to look at some of the different components of normal communication, um, which might seem quite simplistic, but I think they're important to go through so you can understand the context of why it's difficult for these people. We're going to have a look at some augmentative and alternative methods of communication and quite what those phrases mean. And hopefully through doing that, talking about some of those techniques, give you some ways to enhance your communication with, with older adults with cognitive impairment. Yeah, and I think... Finally, just to understand that communication is a two-way process that's not all about spoken word. The MDT Podcast. So let's start off with some feedback on the last episode. Yes. And we have from uh, Dr. Amy, who says she's loving the podcast and the show notes. She feels like these are uh, references for job adverts for her. So that's really great. Thank you, Amy. And then we have Thomas Jackson, who really nicely has recommended our podcast on delirium to some of his medical students. So thanks for that, Tom. And the International Association of Physiotherapists Working with Older People. Again, say another good listen from the MDT. So we're really chuffed about that. And the final bit of feedback for this week is from Paul Sparks, who's a paramedic who recognises that the, or thinks that the podcasts are informative and really useful and finding them really helpful pre-hospital, which is kind of what we were hoping for, that they would span a range of people mm. uh, from pre-hospital in hospital and then sort of out in the in the care home sector okay so we're very disappointed to say that someone has guessed the mdt's are which is very very annoying we have to give congratulations to joe middleton for correctly guessing the mdt's are as a robotic seal uh, the so-called paro seal um which is a real shame because we have some cracking clues coming up um but well done joe you get the very first mdt mug and that'll be winging its way to you shortly. And as a runner-up, uh, I think that's got to go to Liz Langdon, who did ask whether or not it was a robotic pet, but I'm afraid Joe beat you to the chase. He did listen, watch every single episode of The Simpsons that involved the Springfield care home, though, so I think he's fairly dedicated to the course. So well done, Joe. Congratulations. But we also hope that none of you ever get it again. Yeah. The MDT Podcast. As usual, these episodes are put together with our whole MDT faculty. The specific faculty contributing to this episode are Lucy Frost, who's our dementia nurse consultant down in Brighton, and Isla Jones, who's a senior speech and language therapist at King's College Hospital. So as every week, we're going to kick off with some comments from uh, an MDT faculty that we work with. And so we've been around this week and we've asked people to tell us about a time when they had a difficult or a tricky communication with somebody with cognitive impairment. And also how they overcame it. And how they overcame it. Yep. So usually here we ask people to talk about their different perspectives when assessing someone with the thing that we're talking about. But this time we thought actually we'd just cover a couple of stories. 
I'm a physician associate on a ward that has many patients with um, dementia. We had a patient on the ward that was refusing to have any investigations or any examinations done, was extremely distressed. We used a dementia blanket on her lap and then we were able to talk through the colours and the different textures on the blanket. She began to engage with the blanket. At that point, we began to feel that she was more relaxed and we were able to then follow through with our examinations without causing any undue distress. Hello, my name is Megan. I'm an occupational therapist. One of the communication barriers I've had with dealing with cognitive impairment um, has been people not being able to express themselves quite clearly and being able to follow instructions. It's been quite um, difficult for some people. So when you you know, try and explain what you want them to do, like if we wanted somebody to get out of bed, that in itself is a quite a long sentence for people to understand. So um, one gentleman, he really had he had his own language. His wife didn't really understand what what he was saying, and what he it was difficult for him to communicate. So one of the ways we had to go around it was, you know, obviously be very patient with him, try and explain. We did a bit of acting what we wanted him to do, and then one day the television was on with the radio, and he was quite engaged with the music. So in his bed, he was having a little a little wiggle, a little dance. And we didn't really know that actually he could move and what he was capable of. But then with the music, he got quite engaged with it. So then we used that to try and communicate with him that we were going to get up, have a dance. You know, we got him on the edge of the bed because he was having a wiggle, managed to stand up. So that was quite a good, yeah. <laughs> just by fluke really. But now it just means that we can become better at understanding what their needs are. So I think both of those are quite nice stories, aren't they, of finding different ways to communicate with people who are having difficulty communicating normally, if you like. Yeah, I think that really rings through, doesn't it? That both of those are different ways of adapting the communication that's there already mm. to just sort of enhance it and, and make everything a bit better. Yeah, and actually when we when we listened to these first off, we thought, well, that's it, episode done, really. Yeah. Uh, so could they really kind of show the things that we're going to cover today, so mm. how you can use different um, aspects of nonverbal communication in particular. Yep and accessing things that make sense to other people in your communication and enhance that. I think first up, though, I think we need to just have a think about what we mean by cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm thinking dementia and delirium. Yep. And really that the techniques that we're going to talk about today are applicable for patients, both of whom have dementia and delirium. Although the vast majority of the stuff we're going to talk about is a bit more focused on pure dementia, really. But the principles can be used in, can, in any, yeah, yes. either of these scenarios. And one of the other things we're going to talk about is what is communication? So it's both a verbal and a non-verbal process. I mean, it's actually quite complicated. Yeah, it's a high, real, proper high cognitive function, isn't it? Yeah. You, you need to, to be able to do a lot of things to mm. be able to communicate. You need to work out what it is that you want to communicate or what mm -hmm. you want to say. Um, you need control, uh, sort of dexterity control of your mouth and your tongue, which right I am now. lacking at the moment. You need to be able to process the information that is coming out and is coming in. And you need to be able to recognise that those sounds are actually speech or that those movements are actually part of a communicating process. That um, it's your turn to speak. That it's your turn to speak. You know, that what your role is in the interaction that's yep. happening. And on top of that, you have to interpret all of the nonverbal cues, which is it something like 90% of communication is nonverbal? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so you can see that, you know, breaking that down, there are lots of different aspects to, to normal communication, if you like, and disruption of any of those parts um, are going to make it more difficult. Yeah. And so if we just start with delirium, 
we covered delirium in episode two. Mm -hmm. And so just a quick recap, it's an acute, so it's a sudden onset of a change in consciousness that fluctuates and typically affects the cognitive domain of attention. And uh, alertness. And alertness. So people can be either hyper alert, so hyperactive delirium, or they can be not very alert, under alert, if yes. you like. So hyperactive, yeah. And both of those have their own communication difficulties. Mm. In the hyperactive people, they may be very, very vocal mm -hmm. and difficult, maybe even to get a word in edgeways, or difficult for them to be able to, to focus on what you're saying. And the absolute opposite in the hyperactives. So you can see attention, you know, is a, is a huge part of conversation, of communication. Um, so that can interrupt that process quite easily. So I think it's important to remember a couple of things. Firstly, some people do remember their delirium. So the way that you talk to them, the way that you interact with them may be recalled at a later stage. Just be mindful of that. And that what they're experiencing is real to them. It's yeah. that disorientation that, you know, they don't know where they are. Yeah. And, and it can be quite of those distressing things. as a result, can't it? Really yeah. quite distressing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's global brain dysfunction, um, so the exact features can be really broad and varied and don't necessarily follow set rules, but it's kind of a global disruption, and that's kind of important to remember. Yeah. Whereas dementia starts quite specific often and becomes um, more of a global process. So yeah. in the next section, we're just going to talk through some of the ways that dementia itself might impact on your ability to communicate with someone due to the way that the dementia affects different parts of the brain preferentially with each type. Yeah. And this section is not really, you know, you don't have to sort of remember this, but it's just kind of demonstrate that dementia is a pathological process that's happening within the brain. And as a result, these are the communication issues that you may have. Yeah. So, for example, frontotemporal dementia may begin in the areas that produce and understand words. So you may have a dysphasia. For example, you may have an expressive dysphasia where you can't generate the right word or they may have a degree of a receptive dysphasia where they can't understand the words that are coming mm -hmm. into them, which present their own sort of communication problems. Often patients with frontal temporal dementia, when they when they pick up the telephone, often they have this sort of perseveration on certain words. So it's mm -hmm. like, hello, 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 before the sort of things kick in and the communication starts. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that their thought processes are disrupted, no. but just that their ability to express that has been impaired. Yeah. And in the same way with Alzheimer's disease, that really starts with the area of the brain that codes memory. Mm -hmm. So the laying down of new memories. So people may not recall having had a conversation. Mm. That's often yeah. one of the first things that people present with, isn't it? That yeah. they, they can't remember or, or their relatives notice that they can't remember mm. having had a conversation. So they have a a repetitive conversation during the course of the day. Mm. And that's a temporal lobe function. Another function of the temporal lobes is recognising faces. So even if they recall the conversation, they may not remember they had it with you. Yeah. And you coming to speak to them, they, they may not be able to recognise that, that they can trust you, that they have a relationship to build on with you because they have met you before. Yeah. And again, in people whose frontal lobes are affected, the frontal lobes are important for sort of that Normal social, social behaviour, yeah. yeah. Um, and so conversation in those people may be mm. quite skewed. They may have sort of reduced spontaneity in their interactions or be much more disinhibited in their behaviours and, and the what they say. The content of their yeah. speech, yeah. And these things are important to remember because it's that removal of the normal functioning that leads to this rather than their pre-morbid personality as such. So yeah. if they're having these problems, it's not necessarily 
that that's their personality and that's what they truly think of you. It's it's the pathological changes that yeah. are, are disrupting things there. And I think that can be easy to forget sometimes. And you had that really nice phrase that you said to me the other day where you said, with patients with dementia, the communication difficulties are not attentional, nor are they intentional. Mm. I thought that was quite, was quite nice. So it's not attentional, nor is it intentional. I'd forgotten I said that, but yeah. it turns out I'm wise. Yeah, so. well, at times. <laughs> Um, and I guess the, the thing there is that communication is a two-way process. Mm. So and with someone who has cognitive impairment, they're not able to adapt, so you have to. And what we're yeah. going to talk about in the rest of this episode is about some of the skills that you can develop to adapt your communication to make it better with patients yeah. who can't adapt. Absolutely. And one of the things I just want to reiterate is that that bit that we just talked about, about where where in the brain the dementia starts and the communication can begin. Actually, as things progress over time, it can affect any area of the brain and usually in the end stages, the whole brain is affected or large areas of the brain is affected. So anything can happen there. And actually, towards the end, those specific bits, I guess, are less relevant. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just to kind of give you that overview that this is coming from the brain. It's a pathological thing. Okay. So as we said up at the top, about 90% of communication can be nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really relevant here for this, these patients who've got dementia or cognitive impairment. And nonverbal can mean a whole range of things. Yeah, It could mean your facial expression. It could mean your eye contact. It could mean your body language, your positioning. Mm. Um, and real subtle changes in that. You know, there's sitting directly opposite someone is quite confrontational. If you just tilt your body to sort of 20 degrees, mm. much more comfortable for both On of you. ward rounds coming down to their level, if they're still in bed yep. or if they're in the chair rather than standing over them. Tone of voice in particular is one thing that, that really people, even if they can't necessarily understand what you're saying, they can understand that you're annoyed or that you are busy. Uh, that comes across quite a lot in tone of voice. And yeah. we've, we've all seen that, hasn't it? Yeah, haven't yeah. we? Someone being a bit sharp with you and you're like, oh God, sorry. And you see the best people, they have that sort of warm tone of voice or that just sort of completely mm. neutral yeah. tone of voice that allows it mm. to be interpreted in, in a sympathetic way. Yeah. And then simple things like gestures, you might not even be aware that you're, you're doing. Um, and touch. Yeah. Skin to skin touch is really important. Mm. Yeah. So when you're when you're talking to someone, you know, start holding their hand mm. or taking their pulse if that's yeah. something you're comfortable with and if they're comfortable with you doing that. Yeah. Um, and some people will be and some people won't be. Mm. And especially with people who may have other sensory impairments, so people who are deaf or people who are blind in particular, that, that kind of gentle hand-holding or something like that at the beginning it signals, I'm here, I'm here to have a conversation with you and kind of brings the attention to what you're doing. We were talking about... Um, examples of this that we've yeah. experienced. And, and you ha- you were telling me about yeah, something the other day. So um, anyone that's met me will know that I'm not a natural runner. But every now and then I like to try and go out and try and make myself run and make myself a little bit more of a runner. And over Christmas I was home and I was uh, running around my parents' village, which is very small, so you don't have to be a competent runner to get around it. And I'd got about halfway around it and this guy was coming towards me who was clearly a seasoned pro. He had all the kit, you know. He was clearly on like his eighth mile or something and he looked at me he locked eyes with me and he just gave him this knowing look like we're out running <laughs> we are runners gave me a little nod and then off we went and I was like yeah he thinks I'm a runner I'm totally not a runner <laughs> but all this information passed you know between us there was this whole thing completely misguided just on that an eye contact just on that completely misinterpreted feel like I deceived him a little bit, but, you know, I'll take it. Yeah. It's fine. There's, there's a lot there. There's a lot, lot that can 
passed yeah, without the power having of, to have without a actually saying any words. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So next, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about something called person-centered communication, which sounds again like a bit of a vague statement, but it's it's not. It's something that's got quite a, an evidence base behind it, and is quite important in communicating with people with dementia. Yeah, yeah. It's in the nice guidance as a way that we should do it, and it's also well, it's quite widely referenced. Mm. And I guess it, it for me, it starts back with the work of Tom Kitwood back in the late 90s, who was one of these amazing people that did an amazing amount of really influential stuff in a really short period of time. And one of the things that Tom Kitwood said about person-centred communication is that it's all about knowing the person. Mm. You have to know your patient. You have to know where they came from. You have to know their personal preferences. You have to know their goals and their wishes and their desires and then their sort of daily concerns. And the best example of this that I can think of is one that I heard about a long time ago. And it really sort of rammed home to me the, the importance of this because um, I never really got it. I, you know, I, I, I sort of knew that it was to do with maybe the This Is Me document and, and a bit like that. But I never really got it until I heard this example. And the example went something like this. So there was a gentleman who had difficult to manage behaviours mm -hmm. and occasionally could be aggressive and perhaps violent towards some of the, the people looking after him. And he was moved into one of the psychiatric hospitals for sort of assessment and management of, of his difficult-to-manage behaviours uh, or, or behaviours that challenge. And what they found after a long period of time is they, they looked at him and getting him dressed was particularly difficult. And then after he, they'd got him dressed, he was quite agitated for quite a while. And so they were talking to his family about what he used to do. And, and it came up that basically he used to be a, a banker in the city and... Mm -hmm. For every day of his working life and after he retired, he would wear a suit and tie. And in the hospital, they were dressing him in sort of a tracksuit, trousers and a, and a T-shirt, okay. as had been in his care home. And so they said to the family, you know, have you got an old suit and tie that he used to wear? They brought one in, they dressed him in it, and he was calm and relaxed. And his agitated behaviour was his way of saying, I'm not comfortable in these, mm. you know, what I've been put in. For him, it's like wearing pyjamas all day or something. You know, it wasn't right. But he can't have the, doesn't have the words have the ways to, to... to be able to say it. Yeah. And I think that, that comes back, you know, it's, it's a lot about the way things are said or the mm. way patients do things, not so much the what they say. Yeah, and recognising that agitation may be them trying to express something. Yes, it's a form of communication. Yeah, and so trying to work out what it is that they're trying to communicate they're upset at or that something feels uncomfortable is really a, a key part of managing people yes, with, yes. with cognitive impairment. And for me, that's, that is person-centred care. It's yeah. getting down to that level of detail. You mm. may need even more detail than that, you know, to understand the routines, to understand what's normal mm. for that person and then using that as part of your management plan. And person-centred communication, it's a strength-based rather than impairment-focused approach. Yes, yes, so it's yeah. finding those things so, that you can build on rather than um, accepting the limitations going, well, there's just we can't tackle that. Yeah, totally, so, totally. Yeah. There's a nice article that we're going to put a link to in the show notes that goes through it in a nice bit of detail looking at how you can use person-centred care at diagnosis, mm. at the point patients are living with dementia, and then at the end of their life. And they make reference to something called the VIPs model or VIPs mm. model, which is about the V is for valuing. The... Yeah, I can never remember these. No. But it is a good system. Yeah. If you're into mnemonics, it's good. Yeah. yeah. So the V is, is valuing the human life regardless of age or the fact that there's cognitive impairment. The I is down to individual care. 
the P is perspective, so trying to put yourself in their shoes mm-hmm. to understand what it's like. And then the S is a bit tricky. It's, it's social psychology, which is about really understanding the, the social environment that you're in at the time mm. um, and how that you can take that into account and, and adapt the relationships and the surroundings, mm. really. So S could be surroundings. So really it's kind of the, the background to that person yeah. socially, their upbringing, their personality, their personal history, and using all of that in the context of, of caring for them. We should just say that in that article that we just talked about a moment ago, there is a whole list of ways of augmenting um, yes. communication yes, with uh, a whole range of things like dance therapy and music therapy. And we'll, we'll touch on some of those uh, a little bit later on. But the, but the one we're going to just start with is something called validation therapy. Mm, which is a little bit controversial. Mm. It's a specific form of communication that can be used at any time, but it can also be used in a kind of communication therapy um, by trained specialists. Yep. There is an article that we'll link in the show notes that gives some of the key features for validation therapy and what kind of differentiates it from just having a conversation. But there's quite a lot of overlap with uh, the validation therapy with actually the Kitwood's person-centred communication principles, which are quite widely accepted. And there is a little bit of controversy around validation therapy and how robust its evidence base is. But it seems to be useful for some people. So it's something to be aware of. And a couple, just going through a couple of the, there's 14 techniques in validation therapy, but just a couple of the things that I think are really useful for me. Mm. And the first is uh, the idea of sort of centering yourself or focusing upon the communication that you're going to about to, to take place and sort of thinking beforehand, what do I want to, or what needs to happen out of this communication time? And then keeping that in mind as you're communicating mm. so that you don't get drawn away or drifted off. So kind um, of preparing what you're planning preparing to say rather say. than yep. ad-libbing it as you normally would in conversation that you're used to communicating Yes, way. and then up front using really non-threatening factual words, things like who and what and where and when, and not sort of pushing, so not asking why, mm. but just sort of keeping things sort of non-threatening and using the speech that somebody says to you, bouncing it back to them. Using the same words? Or? Yes, using the same words, yeah. Mm. Um, and then you can use ambiguity to your advantage. If if things aren't specific, you can just sort of say they and he and she, sort of using that when people say words to you that don't necessarily make sense, supposed non-dictionary words. You know, okay. you, can, you can use those fairly benign words back to them um, as a means of just bouncing the, the communication back then. and then indicating it's their turn to talk again. Okay. And I think they're really they're, they're really useful. And then that clear, low tone of voice. Yeah. Um, especially as people get older, that, the high tone of voice is one of the things that, that goes. It's the first pitch to go, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah, the natural inclination is to start talking higher, but actually what you need to do is put on your lowest voice. Yes, very low voice. And the importance of touch there, but also in the article also makes a good point about the fact that some people don't respond well to touch and you need to pick up on that. And therefore, if it doesn't go well, you don't you don't, yeah. don't do it again. And all of these things come back to, um, we mentioned briefly the This Is Me document earlier, and you can get that from the Alzheimer's Society from their website. Um, and actually, at my last trust, we used to use that in people with delirium as well, because it is about getting that personal history of that person. It's a really useful document all of these things actually to to base your communication on yeah. where where you start. So the next thing we're going to talk about is something called memory books, which some of you may have heard of before. And they kind of use the written form to kind of bypass some problems that people might be having with speech or accessing certain words or thoughts about things. 
And the aim is that it will compensate for that deterioration in language and cognitive skills by replacing it with an alternative form. So it's it's there. And the technical term for this is augmentative and alternative communication. So you're augmenting what you would ordinarily do or channeling alternative ways of communicating with someone. They're not truly alternative. It's just enhancing those areas. And it provides a way for people to be able to access memories and words that they uh, may be struggling with. So what that means in practice is there was this nice study that looked um, at memory books being index cards on a binder had lots of relevant information on them about care home residents on each page there was a description of something and a picture so it may have been going to the toilet it may have been brushing their teeth it may have been having something to eat yeah getting dressed Um, and the aim was to help the residents to be able to express their wants and needs as well as their ability to actively participate in their activities of daily living and in this study they used this in addition to or as part of the normal interactions with yeah. with people, yeah, with the people that were providing the care to them, and they it was quite nice because they not only looked at how much people talked or tried to to communicate, but also the quality of the conversations yeah. that they were having and how they did that. I'm going to be honest, is quite specific speech and language type methodology yeah. <laughs> and terms that were clearly things are are used in that field quite often but essentially what they uh, were looking at were conversations that were not task orientated so they were interactions between the carer and the resident that weren't just about let's get dressed now yeah yeah and so that's not that's things that aren't just here's your toothbrush hold the toothbrush and here's your towel i'm going to dry you now that's so the interaction moving it into more of a conversation Yeah, yeah exactly and also the number of interactions that they had um, changed as well. Yeah. So essentially, it's a way to help access stored memories, but using graphical prompts and visual prompts rather than um, relying on hearing and words. And having techniques to do that, I think, is really important because one of the things that you sometimes see is that communication starts to break down, mm. and especially with people who have uh, difficult communication or behaviour that challenges, what happens is that the communication is difficult. And therefore, people are less inclined to put the effort in. Mm. And therefore, you get less communication. Mm. And then from the point of view of the patient, less people are talking to them. And so they try to adapt their communication further. And the way they're communicating is is with challenging behaviour. So the behaviour gets worse, worse. And then you get this... Downward spiral. downward spiral of communication. And that was Kitwood as well, wasn't it? And that was Kitwood, yeah. Dehumanisation. Dehumanisation or depersonalisation, yeah. yeah. Depersonalization. Um, and trying to break that cycle is really important. And you can mm. do that with any of these techniques that we're talking about. Yeah. And you just need to find the... It's like a, a series of tools in your toolbox. You just need to find the one that particularly to does... bring them back from that step each time. Yeah. Well, we will link that in the show notes because it's a really nice um, picture yeah. that, that kind of demonstrates that. And I think that we, we could all... If we're honest with ourselves, we can all recognise areas of it and then definitely areas that you can pull back on yeah. and actually you could improve that there. Yeah. And also similar thing to the memory books is talking mats. Mm-hmm. These are uh, sort of Velcro mats with sticky pictures that you can stick on and people can move around to build up like mm. a storyboard to develop their communication. I quite like those because um, like yeah. they weren't necessarily specific to that one thing so to a task or something and they can be used for making decisions about things and something we'll probably come back to when we we do our episode on capacity and best interests which is later this series but also for people to kind of have a 
a record of this is what I feel at this time, this is what I think about this thing, and that can be kept, and quite often they took photos of them, yeah. and so then that can serve as a memory and, and an alternative it's a way, way to document. Documented, it's not, not speech, yeah. Yeah. Uh, next, uh, just briefly, we're going to talk about music, which... We heard about at the top of the show. Yeah, yeah, with that really lovely story. And there's a film that I haven't actually seen. I saw the trailer for when researching this called Alive Inside. Uh, you haven't seen it either, have you? I've not seen it, I've not seen it. And that's kind of accessing the more artistic areas of the brain and finding alternative ways to stimulate that person that you're communicating with and using music to access memories and emotions. Um, and Age UK advocate it as a means of enhancing interaction and communicating with patients with dementia. And there are a couple of examples that spring to mind with this. So there's the Interact group, who are a group of actors who go to stroke wards and read poems or read books to people and sometimes sing with them. Um, and that has been shown to improve their rehabilitation outcomes, mm. which is really nice. And it's a different bit of the brain, isn't it's it, totally I think? Access- we, I, yeah. I, I meant to sort of look this up in some detail, but... Yeah, um, but it's it, so a, it is it's a different bit of the brain that is involved with sort of spoken word versus mm. sung word, which yeah. is why sometimes there's a persistence of one and, and a, a loss of the other. And again, mm. it comes back to what we were saying about communication being really specific. Yeah, and you have to know the person that you're talking to mm. and knowing where their deficit is. And there's a really nice um, in an Oliver Sacks book that I read. There was a really nice example of someone who had forgotten a lot of things. She couldn't remember where anything was in the kitchen. She couldn't manage her house the same way that she used to she's a very proud lady but if you put her in front of a piano she could completely play mm. i can't remember what the deficit was i'm not sure it was dementia but it, it was that that similar thing and um there's the dancing in dementia as well which is really nice because it's kind of um embracing those relationships i think especially re- relationships with loved ones can break yeah. down at this time that that's something that because it's relatively preserved um can still be something that you can share together and and have so the Kind of avoiding that depersonalization yes. that happens. And maintaining the sense of personhood. Yeah, identity and who you are and that you still yeah. have those feelings even if you can't express them. Yeah. And then finally we're going to talk a little bit about the namaste approach, which I haven't seen used much in the elderly care wards. Have you? No, it's no. mostly I've seen it and come across it uh, in hospice care, care and palliative yeah. care. Yeah, Yeah, and so namaste has this meaning. It means to honour the spirit within, which is really nice. Hmm. And what it basically is, compassionate nursing care, using music, music, therapeutic touch, colour, food treats and scents to communicate mm. with a person. So like a multi-modality, lots yeah. of different sensations and using all the senses. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily rely on them, anything beyond that. Mm. So you're not necessarily expecting them to speak back to you or anything like that. But I think it has found that it can calm people and has reduced behavioural symptoms in in people with Mm. advanced dementia who have had this and improves their quality of life by doing that. Yeah, and I think it shows that behaviour is a form of communication. it really links back into that, doesn't it? Um, And then that links into the study study, from a couple of years ago, springs to mind, doesn't it, where they looked at... Using paracetamol. Using paracetamol, yeah, (laughs) as as a sort of a... A regular medication in yeah. in care homes for patients with dementia, and they found uh, quite a big reduction, seventeen percent reduction in levels of agitation. And the wonder, therefore, is if you if we replicate that out, will we use less uh, antipsychotics yeah. as a means of keeping people calm yeah. and relaxed? 
So those which, agitations weren't actually that the dementia was causing aggressive behaviour, it was that they were trying to communicate that they were in pain. Yeah. They may not even recognise that they're in pain, and that's something we see quite a lot in delirium. Yes. You know, we always say if we give people painkillers, that the drug might give them delirium, but also not giving them painkillers can cause might be delirium, the delirium. Yeah. That they can't communicate, and, and as people get older, they may not be able to say, I'm in pain, or even recognise that the sensation they're experiencing is pain. Um, so you have to bear that in mind when yeah. you're assessing someone. And for me, that, that that really cements the whole idea that using person-centred care, using validation therapy, music therapy, whichever tool from the toolkit you use, mm. it's about enhancing the communication to improve the quality of the life of the person that you're looking after and reducing the need for medications to do that mm. because well, antipsychotics they- are pretty universally bad for people with dementia. Well, they're all acting on the brain. and They're all acting on the brain and they, and the they brain increase the stroke risk, they increase working. the falls risk. They, they're, yeah. Yeah. That's not to say that they shouldn't be used. There are certain people that um, they're, they're really beneficial for, but they're, you know, I think the, the less you can interrupt and interfere with the brain's normal functioning, especially if it's not working as it should at the moment the anyway, the better. So as always, um, we've referenced quite a few things there. They will all be available in our show notes on our website, www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. We will also send them out if you sign up to our newsletter from the website. The MDT Podcast. Which brings us now to the time of the week for our weekly quiz. And this is the MD teaser. It's a catchily titled MDT item guessing game. And we have the scoreboard here. And currently, Joe is in the lead by two games to one. Yeah, boo. Right, so Joe, I think it's my go. Is that because you're losing? Yes. Okay. So, again, if you get it right on the first time, you get five points. Second clue, four points. All the way down to the fifth clue, you get one point. Are you ready? Always. Okay, so for Joe, for five points, can you tell me what this MDT item is? And it converts a physical measurement into a numerical value. Oh, is it calipers? It is not calipers. Okay. Secondly, the scale was developed in Sweden by an astronomer in the 18th century. How did I know? No. Next. No. Okay. <laughs> the third, uh, this is my favourite clue. Okay. This can be used either end of the body... Or the side, or the inside. No idea. Okay. The fourth is this can be filled with liquid, it can be electronic, or it can be resistance-based. Is it a manometer? It's not, although that's very close. And finally, this is used daily on the wards as part of the routine observations. Oh, SFIG? No? No. I was going to say that's what no. I meant by manometer. It's a thermometer. Ah. Celsius was the Swedish astronomer in the 18th century. Okay. All right, yeah, but the clues could have worked for for manometer and sphig, could they? I don't know how you could use a, a sphig on the inside of the body. Good point. Manometer you could, though. You could have manometer, that's true. Half point? No. <laughs> All right, fine, my turn. So, are you ready? I am ready. First clue. And I took inspiration from your clues here. Okay, oh dear. Uh, yeah. The name of this item comes from the French word meaning suitable or convenient. Um, suitable or convenient. You know this, I'm leaving. Um, I don't know. Okay. Second clue. It can be placed anywhere, but it's not as good as the real thing. Uh, 
realising that was quite vaguely. But... Um, can be placed anywhere, not because of the real thing. Convenient. Um, is it a commode? What? How did you get it from those clues? Explain yourself, Wilkins. Uh, so it's convenient. It can be moved around. Oh. And it's not as good as the real thing. It's not a toilet. <sighs> all right. Fine. Two all. I had three other clues there. Uh, well, it's two games all. and But we have a clue for you. Yes, we do. So we have a brand new MD teaser for you. And the first clue for this item is that this item can be used as often as the user likes, but it's most typically three times a day. So what do you think it is? Let us know on Twitter using the hashtag MDTeaser. Or on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash podcast. Again, using the hashtag if you can. Yeah. Or email us if you don't like either of those yeah, places. Yeah, and you can, and do you can that email through the website. us through the website. Uh, so that's it for this episode. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.